Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 510th show of ROI. And our noted guest for today's show is Miss Morgan Kahn, graduate student at Miami University of Ohio, and she is going to talk to us about her research paper, Women for Women. Joining us in the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Terry Toppler and Rick Sweet. To begin with, we'd like to welcome Morgan Kahn to the show. Hello, Morgan. Hi. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing fantastic. Uh, we call the first segment of our show Fadruk Danarin. By the way, it was your mentor, Mr. Eric Jensen, who translated <laughs> that for us. I'm not making that up. And our goal is to give our listeners a little background for today's subject. So can you start us off with some of the basic information about the early history of the funeral industry in the United States? Yeah, of course. Um, so basically what I'm looking at is like around the 1880s to 1910s, those like really early exciting years of the funeral industry. Um, and I guess I should give you some context. I'm basing that periodization like as death moves out of the home, you're seeing like rising city populations, rising like disease outbreaks. Um, more people are dying in hospitals. You know, we're, we're just leaving the Civil War a couple of years. And now, now we're trying to like do things a little bit differently. And what I'm looking at specifically is women um, women working as embalmers. Um, there's like this huge gap in the historical narrative. Um, we all like to acknowledge that women like took part in death care before the, before like it became like a real big boy profession, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, but what I'm trying to make a case for is that women remain in this industry for much longer. Um, and they, they basically laid down the foundation for all the stereotypical like white middle-class funerals that we think of in the U.S. today. Um, so really exciting. They like a lot of the, the stitching we do, a lot of the um, tools we use, like trocars and things. Like women had a big a big um, a influence, I guess. So I'm looking at that. Um, specifically, I'm looking at one woman. Her name is Lena Odu. Um, she was an immigrant woman who ended up founding her own embalming institute, and her slogan was Women for Women. So it was run by women, taught by women. Um, most of the students were women, but she did also have male students. Okay. Um, but yeah, very, very openly woman. You know, we want to protect our Victorian dignity. We don't want our mothers and daughters and sisters, like, touched by a, a, a male undertaker that we don't know. So great marketing. Yeah. <laughs> so without a, so with her name, uh, was she from Ireland or where was she from? No, she, okay, look, she was a big fish kind of woman. She liked to exaggerate, um, but I believe that she was born in Geneva, Switzerland. Really? Um, but she liked to tell people that she was like a dainty little French woman, and she was not. <laughs> really? Okay. So let's yeah. uh, go back here. Um, what made you go down this road to do a uh, graduate paper on this? Oh, God. Oh, so many things. Um I think like a lot of us, the pandemic had me, you know, reevaluate my relationship with death. And um, for me, it's a lot easier to think about it by looking at the historical aspect. Like, how did we end up where we're at today? Where do these traditions come from? Um, and then I kind of stumbled upon this woman. She's 
she's kind of like an honorable mention in books, um, you know, like a little footnote. And I'm like, who is this one random woman whose name I keep finding? And then it just got more exciting. And I was like, oh, my goodness, why has nobody written about her yet? Okay. So um, with this kind of institution that she created, what city was it established in? How big was the facility? Uh, When you were talking about how women um, had their concerns about men who they didn't know or trust dealing with their um, relatives who passed away that were Mm -hmm. women, um, how did this all come about? I mean, this is a pretty huge voyage, especially you said after the Civil War. A lot of things are changing, and for an institutional change like this, uh, it seems to be pretty monumental. Yeah, oh my gosh. That's like the exciting part, too, because when I had began this research, um, the Institute opens in 1899 in New York City. So I, when I started, I kind of had this idea like, OK, um, women are doing these things in like big cities like Cincinnati, New York, Boston, Philadelphia. Um, but the more research I did, the more I found that women, <laughs> women were actually working as embalmers in like every single state. And even places like Arizona, like years before it even became a state officially, like women were licensed, educated embalmers. So it's just insane to see the full scope of it because I'm still not sure the full extent. But Lena is in New York. Okay. And uh, was it um, an area which was like, I'm guessing maybe if it was lucky, 1,800 square feet? Or what was the building? Where was its location, if I may ask? Okay, um, it it changes over time. It does expand. Um, Basically, in 1899, she had started the Institute with two other men. Um, It would have been Reverend Stephen Merritt and then Frank Campbell, which eventually they get kind of pushed out. And she ends up moving to like this big, how do I describe it? It's almost like a complex with a bunch of other like schools and like businesses. So it does end up like right in the heart of the city with a bunch of other like um, street space, if that makes sense. Like she would have a physical sign that said women for women that like people would pass by every day. And she ends up doing a bunch of interviews because of that publicity. Does she ever document where she got the title or the, you know, her her motto, women for women from? Um, She does not. But um, that's you. You end up seeing like the same type of phrasing again and again. Like um, one of the things I've noticed in newspaper advertisements is that um, like if you were a woman embalmer, you wanted to market that. So it would you would always see phrases that say like the practical embalmer for women and children. Like I am a lady embalmer, a woman practitioner. Um, so it. It was not that strange. I think it was just a really great marketing tactic that a lot of women embalmers used. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television. 
reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Miss Morgan Kahn, graduate student at Miami University of Ohio, and we're talking about her research paper, Women for Women. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Rick Sweet. Terry, um, why don't you start us off, please? All right, thank you. Yeah, Morgan, I find this a very interesting topic because in my own family, my mother's two great aunts, uh, Minnie and Bertha, were involved in the undertaking business in McCook, Nebraska, back in the early 1900s, along with their brother, Herman. Um, wow. I know. <laughs> and we always used to laugh because they also owned a furniture store, so you could buy your furniture and your um, casket at the same time. That's but, efficiency. <laughs> that, it, oh, it was. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I... I found it interesting when you talked about um, women in the industry and promoting this because you wanted to protect your Victorian dignity. Um, I read somewhere about slumber rooms so that mm-hmm. oftentimes they could be separated where the men would be in one, the deceased would be in one room, the female or children deceased in another. And I even found an article about my um, relatives <clears throat> that talked about uh, slumber rooms, the, the men's were decorated in walnut, the women's were decorated in ivory and rose. So my question, though, comes to this is, can a woman actually own the business in her own name, or does she have to go into business with a, uh, a male relative, like a father or brother? Oh, I love that question. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> these women could do it all on their own if they wanted. Um, that was like another, like one of my goals of disproving, like, stereotypes like oh you become in the funeral profession because of like marriage or family Um, a lot of women are actually trained nurses before they like became embalmers so they actually I see a big shift in like they see that they can make a lot more money as embalmers so a lot of women are actually just doing it independently of like family ties or like marital status um, you definitely have to send me that article about your relatives, though. That's so exciting. <laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs> Rick. Morgan, I was. Uh, you took my fire. I was going to say, hey, Terry, send that article to... <laughs> she's, she's working on research. I mean, she's got a, a lot of work to do. Morgan, you made a comment. Uh, uh, you put the time frame as 1880, I believe, to 1910. Um, what... What what happened prior to the 1880s? Uh, uh, how were people prepared for their final resting place? Yeah, so, I mean, we could honestly go back to those relatives. Um, you see a lot of women performing, like, pretty much every kind of death care task, like washing the body, preparing the body. Um, there's also a term called, like, watch women. So they would, like, sit with the body for days and days until they were ready for burial they would like um, update like the cooling boards, um, which is basically just like a um, kind of like a fun like beach, one of those like beach chairs, <laughs> but with like ice blocks underneath to keep the body cool. Thank goodness. Um, so women, yeah, they were doing all sorts of things and like more feminine tasks, like cutting your hair and 
getting you dressed and stuff. Well, okay, to go with that for my question, were they the first ones to come along and try to make the body um, look more living? I mean, there hasn't been a television show, radio show, any kind of comment when they go see the deceased in that casket. Oh, they look so good that they're alive, or they don't look good at all. Were the, so lifelike. So lifelike. Were the women were the first ones to say, let us try to beautify a little bit like this? Because, I mean, I... I don't know of a single man in my life. It'd be like, okay, you don't even, why were you even opening the hatch? Just leave it down. Herman was <laughs> ugly when he's alive and he's ugly when he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think it would be hard to pinpoint that. Um, obviously, when you talk about embalming, you have to talk about like Thomas Holmes and the Civil War and stuff. But um, embalming really is a restorative art and science. So I think. I, that's a really tricky thing to pinpoint. I'm, okay. I will say you would think based on that and like the feminine aspects, um, you would think that it would remain like a woman dominated career. Um, but I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> that's not a good answer, but I don't know. Uh, one quick question. Lie to you. An extension on being that photography became more and more dominant from the 19th to the 20th century. Do you know when, you have individuals that are going to be laid to rest, uh, and you have individuals embalming and trying to make them look more lifelike. Uh, does photography in any way or shape or form take part in the funeral process during this time period? Oh, yeah. I mean, you, there's plenty of examples of, like, mourning photography and um, propping people up. And that's another—I think that's another part of, like, embalming and restoring that youthful— lifelike aspect um and you see other things too like hair wreaths and memorial wreaths but yeah definitely photography has a big role in all of that like beautification aspect terry yeah morgan can you tell me a little bit more about the hair wreath is that something that was done after the individual passed away and what do they frame it i mean what exactly is a hair wreath oh oh my goodness yeah they look they did all sorts of things. Um, one of my advisors, Dr. Helen Shoemaker, actually has a phenomenal book on that. Um, it's called Love Entwined. Um, but, I mean, you could start it when you're alive, but it's my understanding that, like, usually you would make like take clippings of like a deceased loved one's hair, and you could like like very tiny, delicate braids, and you could like tie them up to look like flowers, and you would. You could either put that in, like, a locket to wear, or you could, like, braid it around a photograph of the deceased. Um, but there's, like, all sorts of examples. You could also, like, have feather art that was similar to that. Okay. Rick. Wow. <laughs> wow. I got to let my hair grow a little longer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, trust me. You're going to be ashes, dude. Uh, There's going to be nothing. Your wife's been talking. Yeah, I'm going to be buried in Nebraska, as a matter of fact. Uh, Morgan, the um, you meant, mentioned in the opening segment um, that uh, part of this process that you're studying laid the foundation for what you call white middle class funerals. Could you, uh, I, I guess, I understand that, but... Uh, for non-whites, were, were there women for women for uh, Indians and Asians and African Americans, etc.? Oh yeah. Um, honestly, 
So there's all kinds of wonderful examples of women in mortuary work. But one of the coolest women ever, um, she was a black woman. Her name was Henrietta Dudier, and she was the first woman of any color to own and operate a funeral home. Um, and it just, it's hard because my project began with this white woman, so it's been very focused on that dimension. But, like, black funeral homes um, and the history of, like, black women in mortuary it's like completely different just because of like cultural practices and like things that they focus on um where was yeah, she where was she morgan where where was she Henry? was in philadelphia philadelphia yeah so her her husband had started um started the funeral in home but he had passed away and she actually once he did she changed it to her full name um the henrietta dudier um, funeral home, and she made all kinds of money. She was very wealthy and a big member of the community. Super cool woman. She also used her industry to, like, um, it was part of the Underground Railroad, so she would have um, escaped individuals, like, in funeral processions and also, like, smuggle them in coffins to freedom. It was cool. wonderful. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just a quick question. When did she do this? When was her business up? Uh, was it in the 18th or 19th century? Um, give me two seconds and I can give you a year. She, let me see here. A decade she will was, work. Okay. <laughs> or a century. Um, she, she was born around 1817 and died in 1903. Wow. Oh, shit. Yeah. Dang, okay. Cool. Really good. Terry. Yeah. So, Morgan, when you were doing your research, what kind of sources did you find most helpful? And did you come across, like, any uh, memoirs or diaries or letters written by some of these women who were in the undertaking business? I wish. Um, <laughs> I Mostly what has been helpful to me has been, like, newspaper advertisements, um, like, trade journals, things like that. Um, I've also found a lot of great, like, court documents. So I had mentioned that Lena started the Institute with two other men. Um, There's like a bunch of lawsuits between the men, which was the whole problem. But they all spoke very highly of Lena. Like they had said, like, she was the most talented embalmer. Like, she was the most qualified. We trusted her completely. We just gave her money and space to run the Institute. So I think that's been the most helpful. But I would love to get my hands on some, like, diaries and stuff. Maybe one day. Well, maybe the problem is the number one customer involved doesn't have a lot to say yeah, pretty, when this is all done. Pretty quiet. <laughs> yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Rick. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to hear. No. Ouch, ouch. <laughs> You're knocking on the casket before you. <laughs> and I think, what, I think what Terry's comment about the woman sitting for days and days and days, I think it's to be sure that the person is, in fact, dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Morgan, uh, uh, I'm going to play ignorant. Uh, uh, when did differentiating the the burial process for women uh, become a standard practice? Uh, I'm thinking back, and I did some research on uh, uh, early Central Nevada history, which you know, men were men and women were men. Everybody did everything, and and uh, somebody died. They just there was no differentiation. Uh, but when did this start to be a uh, a process to differentiate women uh, preparation? The, you cut out a bit. The differentiation between what? 
women, uh, women, uh, a different process to prepare women. In other words, a woman oh. embalmer, a woman cleaning the body, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to a man. Yeah, I mean, um, so before before the industry, it, it would have been common practice for women to always take care of women and children. Um, and I'm, there are times, of course, where men are going to have to prepare women's bodies, but I think it would have always been preferred that women would have been the caretakers. Um, it's just as you see that push for like outside care is when they really start to market it. But I think women had always been the primary care providers, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So when you're talking about having many funeral parlors throughout the nation into areas that weren't even states yet, of course there's supplies. So there had to have been some kind of logistical system set up to buy products, to haul products, to be able to afford them. So mm-hmm. in your research, have you found any like connection where the big, where was it like as an example, uh, back to your talk about Nebraska, that the only place is all going to come out of Omaha and dispense there? Or was there any kind of system set up that, you know what, it covered all corners? Mm-hmm. I mean, it like education-wise or just like... I'm talking materials, <laughs> the materials, oh, like, you know, embalming fluid and all the above. I mean, you're going to see, like, there's all sorts of, like, mortuary magazines that are popular at the time, like The Sunny Side, The Casket. um, The Sunny Side, that's the name of a magazine? Yeah, that's the name of a mortuary (laughs) magazine. (laughs) Um, You also have, like, the start of, like, the National Funeral Directors Association, where they would have, like, big conferences. Um, So there there is, like, a a big market. So I imagine you could just, like place orders because i've seen plenty of embalming ads and there would have been like like cincinnati had all sorts of like manufacturers for embalming fluids that would ship out throughout the country okay terry yeah morgan did you find anything really surprising in your research that you didn't expect to find when you were looking at the early funeral industry oh god <laughs> it, it's all been a surprise like i like i said i wasn't expecting nearly as many women um so I, I feel like I'm constantly surprised because it's it's not just white women, it's black women, it's immigrant women, it's people that are like Seventh Day Adventists, like people from every background are doing this, and it's just been crazy to see the full extent of it. And and like Lena, my my love, she ended up having a woman student who went back to Syracuse, New York, and she started her own embalming institute. And it was open until, like, 2011. Like, it's just, it's impossible to fully gauge, like, the impact that these women had, not only, like, on their community, but the funeral industry at large. So okay, Rick. I'm, I'm always surprised. Rick. Well, in the uh, same token, Morgan, uh, in your research, what did you find that horrified you? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, um. I don't want to say horrified, but one thing that has made me stop is um, it's really easy, you know, it's always easy to, like, look for a hero and to, like, glamorize these people. Um, But, like, I I have to remind myself, Lena was just a human, and um, I actually found examples. She would run her embalming institute 
with these two male funeral directors, um, but her students were basically like performing free labor. So like these two men, they would have bodies and Lena's students would embalm them for free pretty much. So she was like making a lot of money in maybe not the most ethical ways. But, like, good for her, I guess. Did you just describe, like, graduate work for PhDs yeah. at major universities? I've Did been I there and that? I've done that, yeah. I've been there done that. He made so, a lot yeah. of money on my book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, Morgan, it's customary for us to give our uh, guests uh, the last two, last word in the last two minutes of the show. Why do you think knowing about the role of women in early funeral industry is relevant in today's world? Oh, God. Um, it is incredibly relevant because they have absolutely shaped so many of the practices that we have today um like thing traditions that have just carried on that it's it's easy not to question why we do certain things like why do we embalm you know we're not abraham lincoln we're not going on a train trip across the country um <laughs> that's so why, what you think do do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm not my my body's not going far so you know it, I think it's well worth studying and it's always worth trying to um, close those historical gaps and to just see women as scientists and entrepreneurs in ways that haven't been explored yet. Okay. Uh, Terry, why do you think it's relevant in today's world? Well, I think that it's, it, it is interesting because I think as you know, our world becomes more populated and ground space, burial space, <laughs> let's say, is limited, you know, that some of these traditions are going to have to be re-explored and decided if they want to be continued or not. So we need to know where we've been before we can move forward. Okay, Rick. Well, Morgan hit a nerve ending with me. The historical gap, as a historian, as I've gotten older and wiser, I found just huge gaps in in uh, history, you know, the process from once we've come to where we're going, as Terry would say, and I think this is why this is relevant because of the significant impact women had on this industry. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 510th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show, titled Kayla's Theme, was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our noted guest, Morgan Kahn, graduate student at Miami University of Ohio, who talked with us about her research paper, Women for Women. Uh, the History Bus for today's show were Terry Toppler and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. 
We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.